spent time with Chris and it was like, well, here's the still and there's stuff in there and there's where you turn it on. I've got classes. I'll see you in four hours. the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So I am sitting here today in Dry Fly Distilling in Spokane. I'm up in their tasting room. Well, am I in the tasting room? You're in the event space, but yeah. I'm in the event space. Uh, I'm with Don Poffenroth. He told me to sound it out, but I butchered it. But Don is the founder of Dry Fly Distilling. Don, thanks for making this happen. No, my pleasure. Why don't you tell us about Dry Fly first? Dryfly uh, started in uh, the uh, the entire process started in 2006. We really started producing in 2007, and uh, we're, at that time we're the 20th or 21st small distillery in the U.S. So oh. it was an incredibly small industry back then. Um, everybody knew everybody. We all talked on the phone because we were all fighting the same battles. And really, the distilling part of that came out of uh, a simple conversation when I was searching for uh, something to do kind of post my primary career uh, and decided uh, that that, uh, being in the alcohol industry sounded like fun, being an (laughs) avid consumer. Uh, And and originally, you know, honestly looked at beer. And this was, you know, in 2006 when everyone was saying, no, craft beer has grown all it will grow, which was the stupidest statement ever. Uh, in hindsight, uh, but, but I was able to get connected with, um, uh, Nick Haas from Christian Carl and Christian Carl is the oldest continuous steel manufacturer in the world. Um, they make, uh, arguably the best equipment that's made in the world. Okay. Uh, so that connection kind of started putting the dots together that, uh, this, this arena of small distilling even existed and, and was allowed by, uh, U.S. law and, and all those other kinds of things. So uh, that was really the primary start. Uh, spent some time uh, in Michigan with uh, Chris Berglund, who at that time was the godfather of small distilling in this country. Unfortunately, Chris passed a few years ago, but he was a chemical engineering uh, dean at uh, Michigan State and was given kind of the task of helping fruit farmers at that time uh, figure out what to do with cold fruit and distillation was the answer. Hmm. Um, so Chris was very well connected with the folks at Carl and that gave me a place to go play on a still. Like I can remember the first time I uh, spent time with Chris and it was like, well, here's the still and there's stuff in there and there's where you turn it on. I've got classes. I'll see you in four hours. Uh, so <laughs> it was a trial by fire for sure. But, uh, um, so I got to ask that first batch. Yeah. Here or there? There. That first bat, that first day. When I you- turned things on and, and uh, you know, luckily had done a little bit of reading. I, I'm not so sure that we didn't dump it down the drain when it was done. But, okay. Uh, I made the still work. So You made the still work. Yeah. Okay. Maybe not effectively, but uh, I probably got better at it as I, as I well, went on. Well, I would on. hope you got better. <laughs> but I really didn't spend any time distilling, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint or on any scale until we literally put the equipment in here. And so what wow. we relied upon was uh, that we had... Um, the raw material source we in uh, any raw material we use in this facility is grown within 30 miles of here. So um, we're, we're hyper agricultural. Um, so that's super important to us. We're farmer direct. There's no middleman in that equation. And we deal with the farmers directly. Um, and, and that just allows us to really narrow down what we want and don't want. Uh, in, in our primary farm, we've used since day one. 
So okay. um, a, a great 15 year relationship. Uh, so we had the raw materials we trusted. Uh, we had, I, I came out of the food industry on the marketing side. So we, we had at least in our mind, the ability to take a product to market and figure out how that side of the equation worked. Uh, we were missing the middle gap, which is how do you connect those two dots? And we just relied on Christian Carl, the oldest company in that business. So at 170 years old, if they haven't figured it out, no one has. So they helped you connect those dots. They did. I mean, uh, you know, they created a set of equipment. I often refer to it as distilling for dummies, right? So <laughs> we, we dumbed it down and made it as simple as possible. Okay. Um, our first set of equipment was incredibly flexible. It had the ability to do whatever we wanted it to do. And then it just became dialing down process. And, and uh, I, I can remember sitting with the guys from Germany or talking to them on the phone and, and I would go, well, what do I do when I get here? And they go, well, you have four choices. You know, you should try all four of them. And at that particular juncture, I'm like, you guys, I don't have time to try four things. And then they're like, well, then just pick one and do it. So that's kind of how we survive. We, so what we do picked you mean, a pathway. What, what are the four? Help me out here because I know nothing yeah, about. Yeah. Well, there to, were four decisions at every single corner, right? Okay. So, I mean, as you develop kind of this process of distilling, uh, I guess you have to determine what the driving factors are. And for us, they were a couple of things. The local raw material thing was absolutely crucial. So we were going to make that work. And um, that that maybe is best reflected in the fact that we make gin from things we can buy in the state of Washington. Okay. Right. So we didn't uh, attack a gin recipe based upon what we thought a world worldly gin should be. Um, we made a gin because we wanted to make a Washington gin and, and finding those raw materials in our area became important. And, and then I think we were fortunate that we had good palates and we had the ability to taste things. So we would make things that we thought tasted well. Okay. So what was the first product you guys, well, let's go. Wait. I asked you a question then uh, you, you, you gave me a Sub answer. So I asked you about your first still. I'm a good sub answer guy. How about the first time you fired the still up here in here. Washington? What What did you guys? Well, I was like, I had the guys from uh, I had the guys from Germany here with us. Okay. Uh, and after a long day of distilling, at that at that time, uh, Northern Lights Brewing, which has uh, changed names and come under different ownership, but back in the original days of Northern Lights and Mark Irwin, um, we had a brewery next door. So we basically got some subpar beer from them. That became our experimental stuff before we even started mashing ourselves. Um, so we had a ready source of fluid to distill, uh, for lack of better terminology. So the first thing we really learned is how to purify that and basically make 190 proof. So make a base for vodka. Okay. Um, so that really became our first thing. And that's fairly mechanical, meaning that you're, you're using the still to achieve an objective. You're still making some cuts in that distillate. Uh, to hit a flavor profile, definitely. Um, but that's what we learned to do initially was to make high proof alcohol. And then we spurred uh, that that leads into vodka. And then that led into gin. Those were our first two items. We didn't make whiskey for maybe nine or 10 months, in all honesty, because whiskey is a much more difficult thing to make. There are way more factors involved. You're taking distillate at a way lower level. Um, your cuts become more critical. So th that was maybe, you know, the 201 level class, the 101 okay. <laughs> level. We handled vodka and gin, got those out in the marketplace and then jumped into whiskey and, and then made whiskey and sat on it for a number of years before we were able to release it. Well, well yeah, that's some of it though, right? Because gin and vodka don't have to be Correct. aged and whiskey and bourbons and all that. We yep. age them. Your vision, you got, you said you wanted to get, in, you got to decide to get into distilling. What did you want to make? 
Are you a vodka guy? Or are you? A- oh, we wanted to make whiskey. You're, I mean, so that, whiskey that, was the goal. That that was always the primary objective. Right? Okay, that that is there is way more art in uh, in making a whiskey. There are way more decisions. There's way more factors okay. to uh, to play with in that in that scenario. That being said, the the thing that we became immediately known for, and, and we were fortunate, maybe our second year in, in business, um, we won the largest competition in the world, which is the San Francisco Spirit Competition, um, held every year in California. So it's the largest um, international competition of spirits. We won the vodka category. So we not only wow. won best vodka, we won the entire category, um, which a small distiller had never done. So it was the very first time any small manufacturer. And at that time, so we were making, you know, 5,000 cases a year. It was not a big thing. No. Uh, to be recognized at that level. And we were told uh, that we won it via an email. So this, <laughs> this was even before text messages, before text. I think. Uh, we were told in an email. And I, I remember the phone calls we had at that time. There were only three of us here. And we were like, Somebody is playing with us right now. Somebody's yanking our chain. Right. You know, so we just basically called BS on it and uh, sent the email back and said, yeah, you guys are super funny. You know, then the next, by Monday, that was on a Sunday. By Monday, people were calling us. So it, it was the real deal. And what did that do for the company? I, I think it and it gave some validation to the process and what we were doing and and what our ethos was, which was to again stay local and be who we are and and stay in our zone and and uh, it it you know it verified that that was the correct pathway. Uh, probably got us some distribution, you know, in the grand spectrum of things. I think that that's always a growing process, but probably got us a little bit of attention. It's it's not like winning an award automatically makes everything easy. It just <laughs> opens a few doorways. And so it opens some doorways we could walk through. So I have a question, and I love the fact that you're doing everything Washington State because that's, that's what we're all about. Mm-hmm. But this is almost, I'm going to phrase it in a negative way. Is your product limited because you're only using stuff within 30 miles? I, what I'm saying is like, yeah, I think it's a great question. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I will, I will argue with you that uh, the exact opposite is opposite is true, and more people should be using Washington grain. Okay, so okay, I don't. Okay, so I think you can almost, in my mind, I take almost a terroir approach to grain, meaning okay. I, I care what it comes from. Uh, and, and we learned this early in our life when we first originally bought grain, we bought from a grain co-op. So the grain that we would get, although it was a single variety and maybe even a single seed variety, although I don't think it was that specific, uh, would change. And what I learned in spending time with that co-op and going to their meetings and speaking to the farmers is that I needed to buy from a single farmer, right? Okay. And I took the wave, the variance out of, I'm having grain that came from multiple pieces of property, different moisture contents, different protein contents. So batch to batch, there were some inconsistencies that were difficult to wrangle by going to one farmer, telling him what I needed, and he could make decisions when he was harvesting then to put specific grain in a specific silo for me. And it kept us way more consistent. That's okay. So that's really kind of fascinating because what I'm not, and not that I'm aware of much in the world, but I'm not aware that Washington has a, a, a reputation for wheat or grain in general. Oh my I gosh. Could, well, I, yeah. I'm a city kid from yeah, the yeah. West side. So yeah, we, we grow some of that. In soft white winter wheat, we are a world leader. Okay. Uh, so, uh, okay. In soft white winter wheat is um, a small amount is used in bread. It's used in things like uh, angel food cake and pastries. Uh, in, in making great vodka. 
uh, amongst <laughs> other things. But I mean, the, the variety of grain that we use is Madsen. It was developed at WSU in the 1940s, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> that seed variety still exists. That's very uncommon. Usually okay. a seed variety only lasts a certain amount of time, becomes susceptible to some kind of thing environmentally, and it goes away. But this seed variety is pretty much hung in there for a long time. And it's just because it was de- developed for the land on the land. And I think that makes a difference. So then you can call up the farmer and they're a partner, if you will. Mm-hmm. They're not just a, a supplier. Oh, yeah. They're a partner. They're part of our family. Right. So you can say whatever technical thing you're asking for and they, they can make a business decision, but they know you. Yeah. I, I probably will say that uh, they make the technical decisions and help lead me. I mean, they know their grain. They have it analyzed. Uh, and re- we were faced with a really good example of that this year. The 2021 crop from a distilling perspective was horrible. Why is that? Uh, meaning we didn't have a lot of rain. It was super dry. It was a hot year. Um, that made a smaller grain kernel. Bu- uh, bushel yields were down. Protein levels were up. And protein for us is the opposite end of the equation. We want the wheat to have more starch content because we can convert the starch to sugar and therefore make alcohol. So a bunch of protein uh, is not kind to our system. Okay. Um, so we're not buying any 2021 grain. So we had had enough 2020 grain we siloed uh, with the help of our farmer to hold on to enough volume to get us through. So we'll bop back in the market in 2022. So just to help me wrap my brain around this, how much, how many bushels of grain are we talking about? Uh, We use about a million pounds of grain a year. A million? Yeah, it sounds like a lot. It's not. It does sound like a lot. Yeah. Just sounds like a big number, but I mean, it is. For our particular farmer, it might be 12% of his wheat crop that okay. we're buying. So uh, maybe it's consequential to him, uh, mainly because I, I not only am paying him for the grain, so I, I let him float on market price. So if the wheat price goes up, he gets to take advantage of that with me. But in return, he's siloing on the property. He, okay. he protects us. So you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't argue wheat prices. Okay, so you're not checking the commodity market every day. I I don't need to. Okay, I I, I want the farmer to be successful. I want his family farm, which is now 116 years old, to be here 100 years from now. Okay, so a million pounds a week. That see, from the outside looking in, that sounds like a lot. That does. That sounds like a lot to you. You're like, okay, yeah, big deal. It's nothing, but it does sound (laughs) like a lot. All right, because I love this. This whole. So, well, I'm going to come back to something you said about gin based on Washington products. What does that look like? I, I am not a, a So when a we started that process, right? So, uh, and I will throw in caveat on there. We would love to buy juniper berries in the state of Washington. And there are juniper berries that grow wildly in the state. There is no one currently that has FDA authorization to pack juniper berries. Right? Oh. And we have to have point of origin sourcing on all of the raw materials we use. It's an FDA requirement in case someone makes nuclear juniper berries or something, I guess. <laughs> um, so although you and I could go out and pick juniper berries right now and, and we could theoretically make gin out of them, we can't do that. You can't just pull stuff out of your backyard okay. uh, when you're a manufacturer. So our juniper berries currently come from Oregon. Um, okay, well, but the still- rest of the items we pick, so we have coriander, apple, lavender, mint, and hops are all from this state. So what we did is we went to the Washington State Department of Agriculture, sourced a list of things grown in the state of Washington, contacted farmers, had them send us samples, and then worked that way to develop our gin recipe. 
versus saying this is the gin we want to make we kind of came at it another way and in in 2007 when we started that um, it was weird gin uh, by 2012 or 13 this new category had been created which was called american style gin which was gin that geographically reflects where it's from Okay. So it kind of became its own category. Not, not that we had anything to do with that, other than the fact we led the pack kind of on being that, having that approach. All right. Huh. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at the, the back bar, and I'm seeing several bottles back there. What is the light pink bottle? Oh, it's probably a Huckleberry lemonade. Or a Huckleberry vodka, I mean. Huckleberry vodka. Yeah. Okay. Interesting so, thing, there's a there's a ton of Huckleberry vodkas in the marketplace, and they're all clear. And I don't know if you've ever picked Huckleberries. I have. Huckleberries are not clear. They're not clear. Your fingers turn purple. Yes, they do. So you'd think if there was Huckleberry in there, there'd probably be some color, right? Perhaps. I'll, I'll <laughs> just say that that's, that's a good, our, our approach. We actually use Huckleberries to flavor our Huckleberry product. Right. We don't use Huckleberry flavor. Okay. We were very fortunate early in our career to have, um, we used to do a lot of distilling classes in here because we were an early adapter and and uh, and we got approached right away, people coming in and say, well, I want to come distill in your distillery. And we're like, well, huh. listen, we've spent a lot of time and money trying to figure this out. Um, you can do that, but you got to come take a class. And, and we probably helped 25 or 50 small distilleries across the country get open. Okay. And, uh, the, and the theory always was, I, I call it the rising tide theory, right? Right. Um, set a standard and hopefully uh, everyone will follow. And, and uh, um, in that group, we had someone come from a flavoring house, a, a big flavoring house. And they were really trying to learn and understand about the distilling industry. We consequently learned a lot about flavoring and, and those became things we didn't want to do. And it was uh, it had nothing to do with this wonderful person who came and spent time with us that we've talked to again and again on different projects and, and helping other people out. But we decided we weren't a flavoring company. We're, okay. we're uh, If we say we make a product with Huckleberry, um, you can be damn well sure there's going to be Huckleberries in there. All right. So one other one bottle removed is kind of a... A yellow? So that's a barrel-aged gin. So oh. we, we kind of were one of the first distilleries, if not the first. Being being early in this industry, uh, there's a ton of us that will claim have done something for the first time, right? <laughs> um, and, and we have a, a lot of those that, that we did as well. And uh, we don't really talk about that a whole lot. But um, barrel-aged gin, listen, was a complete and total mistake. We had some gin and uh, we weren't ready to bottle it. There was a shortage of bottles, I think. At that particular time. So we threw it in a barrel and we literally forgot about it for multiple years, two years, I think. Oh. And then came back and said, well, we had to do something with that and pulled it out and said, uh, wow, that's pretty good. We probably should keep making that. So that was a, I love asking the question, like, I love talking about mistakes. Like you thought this would be a great idea. So you just kind of just answered my, one of my questions is you threw it in a barrel. Yeah, we threw it in a barrel. Now we do barrel each gin. And from the historically, from a historical standpoint, half of gin was put in a barrel when gin was originally made. So it was nothing new. Okay. Just no one in this country had done it. Everyone had believed that, you know, the only kind of gin you could sell were these big juniper bomb gins that, you know, everyone makes a martini with and they want to hear that or feel that, taste it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we have the philosophy that that uh, there can be other flavors in the category. It's okay. 
what type of barrel is the barrel aged gin? It's one of our own whiskey barrels so on second use. It's a yeah. second use whiskey barrel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the good thing about gin, there's no criteria on what that barrel has to be. So we could do whatever we wanted to at the end of the day. And how much of the 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 barrel I mean, I'm looking at that and it doesn't look like gin. Yeah. So how much fl- Or does it look like gin? Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's wrap our head around that. Um <laughs> It, it doesn't look like gin that if my doesn't look like regular gin. Uh, yeah. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not a gin no. person, but how much does the barrel impact the flavor of that? In I, your opinion? I think quite a bit. So, um, we use all American Oak barrels when uh, new American Oak, and it's really a criteria of American whiskey. So it's not like we have a heck of a lot of choice to be honest with right. you. Right. Um, we put, uh, a, incredibly narrow band of distillate in our barrel, uh, meaning that we don't put, uh, we don't take yield into consideration when we barrel whiskey. And what I mean by that is uh, we put a much finer distillate in the barrel than is typically put in a whiskey barrel. Typically the distillate is rougher than you put in a whiskey barrel. Some of those rough things over time will become wonderful. Um, so putting that rough distillate in a barrel sometimes gives you flavor profiles that you want. Okay. Uh, the downside of that equation is it takes a lot more time for those to temper down. So by putting a softer distillate in the barrel, you typically reduce the aging period. So you know maybe a, a two-year, three-year whiskey really is like the other guy's four- or five-year whiskey um, just because the barrel has not had to do any cleaning it can add character. It doesn't need to fix oh. flaws in the distillate. Okay. Um, that, that being said, we make kind of both now. We make some rougher distillate, wider band, and we still make some narrow band uh, products. And, and uh, some things will take to a longer age and some things don't. Being 15 years old, you know, we have 11, 12-year-old whiskey now that we can sell if we want to. And, and uh you know, we're still learning every day about what happens in a barrel. And, and that's the fun part of what we're doing now. There's still things to learn every day. Well, is, doesn't like what happens in the barrel is also impacted by where the barrel is as far as the temperature of the room and that the barrel's sitting in and things like that? Yeah, we, we've always basically barrel aged at an ambient room temperature. And uh, the last three or four years, we've moved to offsite barrel storage. So that's um, non-temperature controlled. Okay. Um, so we're getting more moved in, in the barrel and the flavors that are coming out of the barrel are better. Oh, okay. Um, in a room that's basically 60 degrees all the time Fahrenheit or 55 degrees Fahrenheit, it's a fairly steady thing, meaning it's more of a linear um, aging process. Uh, the the process when you have heat and cold in a building requires you to rotate barrel inventory a little bit to kind of mellow things out and even them out for sure. But um, yeah, it's all good. It's all new things to learn. Well, that's, uh, that's the kind of a thread I'm seeing here is yeah. that you're, you're, you're constantly learning stuff. So this new space that we're sitting in, uh, how many square feet? 16,000 square feet of floor space. And we added a 3,000 square foot mezzanine. So it's about 19,000 feet. We have a 14,000 foot basement uh, beneath us, which is a big thing for us. We came out at a four or 5,000 square foot building uh, and a 4,000 square foot external uh, warehouse. So uh, we we have more than doubled our size. And, and what really what this allowed us to do is A, spread things out and get all of our functions so they each had their own space so they weren't on top of each other. Right. Uh, which makes it more efficient. Uh, B, in the 
13 years or 14 years we were at our other building um, we learned all the things that we would do if we would build a new building and we did them here um, so efficiency things like having the correct flooring and draining systems and we have a wastewater management system here and we the way we deal with water and every input output thing was dialed in here uh, okay. and then this is you know right out of the gate four times our capacity that we had so gives us some growth it, it, the building's designed to handle 10 times our original capacity so uh, yeah we're ready to go so this space was the old spokesman review it was the spokesman review print press so in in this particular uh, spot uh, we printed color circulars for the most part okay and uh, maybe some sunday ads that you would see uh, so that was what was done in this part of the building. And this building was done 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. So it's not very old. Okay. Um, it's a beautiful building. It's on the corner of Monroe and Riverside in Spokane, which is arguably one of the top corners there is in, in Spokane. So incredibly visible um, to have our sign on, on this building is, uh, it is, is a pretty special thing. All right. We're going to come back to that. Let's go back to when you started. How was dry fly received in Spokane? Uh, we were, we were incredibly fortunate. We, we were the first, uh, distillery since prohibition in the state of Washington. So, and at that time, Washington was not a, it was a state run system, right? So mm -hmm. it was a little bit of a different, uh, yeah. thing going on. So I can remember going in front of the Washington liquor board and we would, uh, and the liquor boards was four or five people. Literally you sat in front of those four or five people, <laughs> told them what you were going to do. You had an appointment for 11 minutes. 11 minutes. 11 minute uh, section. So we went in with our distributor from the state and walked into this meeting that was supposed to last 11 minutes. We were there for an hour and a half because the liquor board was enamored to try to learn what was happening in this sector, what was going on. And since we were the first purple people they got to talk to, um, they wanted to understand what our business was and what we thought was going to happen. And then they ultimately made the decision of putting you in those stores or not. And there were 300 stores in the state of Washington at that time. Some of those were uh, contract stores. Some of them were state-run stores. Um, so I think we got into 150 or 160 stores as a result of that thing. So we went from uh, doing our first delivery to the state of Washington, which at that time had this you know multi-hundred thousand square foot robotic automated warehouse and we delivered 11 cases in the back of my pickup truck uh to that beautiful warehouse no, where, where where was this warehouse at uh off of uh down by where um costco is kind of down. here in town it, no in, it was in uh, seattle in seattle yeah so downtown, you drove seattle. your pickup truck from spokane yeah with nine either nine or eleven cases of that vodka. was economically uh viable listen the state wanted product we were going to get it there <laughs> we had somebody buying. We had a customer. Okay. And yeah. at that time, we couldn't sell ourselves, right? That right. Was, it was before the craft distilling laws had really solidified. And we had done the legislative work to allow ourselves to exist. So we were uh, somewhat responsible for getting that uh, going and started. And Chris Marr, a local a state senator, helped us get that done, which was awesome. Uh, and then we continued to develop that law to ultimately give us the opportunity to sell our own product. But at that time, it was all done through the state. So we went from nine cases the first time to, I think, three pallets on the second order, which is three weeks later. Okay. But I mean, that's kind of how we got started in the state. And, and uh, very early on uh, in our first month of existence or two, um, you know, when we would bottle product, it would be friends and family. Okay. 
So we would all gather around a table and we would fill four bottles and put corks in and put shrink wrap thingies on them and et cetera, et cetera. And, <laughs> you know, we would be happy if we did 40 cases that would take four or five hours. And we did an interview with a local public uh, TV station, uh, kind of on like a, you know, a Spokane profile kind sure. of thing. And at the end of that interview, the person asked, he said, well, I mean, is there any way people can help you out? And we're like, listen, man, my mom and dad won't come anymore. I've been a call them. We have to bottle on Saturday. <laughs> you know, we had like burned the bridges. Like we could really use help bottling. And then that became a thing. So at, uh, within little or no time, we were bottling, you know, twice a week. We had eight or 10 people each time. So volunteers and were coming in? They were, we, first we put a list in and people would come sign up to a list. And then we found people would come in and they'd go like, well, we want to come back. So then that group would list again. So we got to the point where we had a year's worth of people signed up ahead of time. It was the most amazing thing. So it was the greatest uh, community outreach brand ambassador program that was never meant to be that happened. That's awesome. So it ingrained us in the community and and we've done multiple things there. Most, most recently we really shut down as a distillery during the uh, first part of COVID and started making hand sanitizer. So we were the first distillery to get federally licensed to do hand sanitizer and then did that for our community. And we gave that product away and we felt that that was what we needed to do to help. Um, so we would have lines of people, sometimes 50 blocks long in their cars that would come by and we would hand them bottles of sanitizer. And then we do that on Friday and Saturday. On Thursday, we would do first responders and hospitals. They would come in and we would load that, them up. So it just became a thing. And we were filling hand sanitizer in every way you can imagine from we had Gatorade jugs that we were filling little <laughs> bottles out of and you couldn't get bottles. Like it, right. it became <laughs> apparent quickly that that supply was necessary. So, I mean, we had bottles coming from all over the country and then we sent out kind of an SOS. We can't get bottles. And we got people calling us and say, well, I used to have a perfume company. I have 10,000 of these bottles. So we put sanitizer and perfume bottles and we oh did whatever we could get our hands on. And there were some, amazing uh, local companies that stepped up to help us out. And then we would have groups of volunteer filling groups of volunteers handing stuff out. Uh, and, and it was a crazy time for us, but it was a, the right thing for us to do. And, and uh, it, I'm so glad we did it. Uh, and we uh, were able to help the community. I think at that time, uh, when COVID was just starting, everybody was freaked out. And it was the one thing that made people feel okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys, so this company has had a, a nice rapport with its, with Spokane. I love Spokane, man. I think, uh, I think that's pretty mutual. Okay. We're going to come back to you. I promise we're going to put you on the spot. But I want to know the name Dry Fly. I think I'm not a fisherman either. So yep. here's a guy who's not an expert on vodka and gin. Our fishing, I'm asking you questions about your stuff. Yeah. How'd you come up with the name? Uh, definitely came from fly fishing. So okay. I, I'm an avid fly fisherman, and and uh, you know I I uh, again came out of the food industry and out of the branding propositions, and, and had done that for a long time in my career. So to me, I wanted. Uh, I wanted something that would uh, reflect the Northwest. Okay. And uh, in, 
obviously that I connected to, it made it easier for me to live with that and sell it because it was a passion of mine. Uh, in the, the red fly was very iconic. I, I can remember exactly when we developed that and how we did it. And there were beers involved and <laughs> flashlights and fly tying vices in downtown Seattle at an ad agency that helped us do that. Uh, and, uh, my idea or my background thought was I, I need to create this Nike swoosh for dry fly, right? This thing that eventually that fly all by itself will tell the story. So is that fly, is it, is it an actual fly? I Absolutely. Mean, oh, well, okay. Yeah. It is a parachute Adams. Thank you. Yes. Okay. And what on earth would I use that fly for? It is a go-to Western River uh, fly that was developed, I think, in the 1930s, if I'm not mistaken, maybe even earlier than that. And just an iconic Western fly. So when we were looking at doing this, we literally took a fly tying vise, stuck flies in, and then flashed a flashlight behind it and looked at the shadow on a wall. So that was how we found what we were looking for. I like that. Yeah. That's very cool. So you've been doing this 15 years yeah. and I warned, well, I didn't really warn you, but I, these bounce around a lot. These are not a linear conversation. It's all good. During the 15 years, has the state been reasonable to work with? I think for the most part. Okay. Um, I'll tell you that, especially during this pandemic, uh, the state has been amazing. One of the things, just being a casual you know, consumer of alcohol, I, I was reading the Seattle Times and I, I saw that they were allowing to go cocktails. And I was, I was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I, I was, know. I was, I don't know if there was any more news out of COVID that struck me more than the state yeah. of Washington saying, you can sell cocktails to go. Well, just- I, I think, listen, I, um, I've had issues with the state of Washington. I mean, I think that is a common thing in my industry to, sure. to have things. I, I think the state of Washington has made a number of mistakes. And I think that happened when we when we went from a state-run liquor system to a privatized system. I, I think people were hurt in that equation. Okay. I think there were a, a bunch of small manufacturers that were crushed because market access went away. Uh, so I think there were some bad things during that period. And I, I think most of the problems that I probably have ever had with the state of Washington happening in that time. Okay. We were fortunate that at that time, the state of Washington was maybe 20 or 30% of our overall sales, right? So we had diversified in other states. So we learned to wag our way through. Plus we were in business for eight or 10 years before 1182 happened. So we were already on the shelf. We were, we were in the system. Mm-hmm. So it made it easier uh, for us. And it, a lot of our small counterparts went away mm. during that. Being a small guy got to be very, very difficult. Uh, since the pandemic, uh, the state has done, I think, everything they can to, uh, in some way, protect their own revenue stream. Right? Sure. They, they make a lot of money off of selling alcohol to uh, help the industry, meaning they know that the restaurateurs and the bars got slammed and hammered. So things like to-go cocktails, I think, were a nod from them to say, we're going to try to help you guys survive here. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, whether that carries on into the future, we have yet to see. But sure. um, I'm a big believer that as a licensee, you're already being held uh, to a standard. You have the license. They can take that from you whenever they want to. Okay. So if you uh, can uh, 
provide a service or do an activity that adds additional revenue to the state and doesn't uh, violate any of the terms of your license, then we really shouldn't have a problem with it. Okay. There, and where I'm going with this is that I'm looking at some canned cocktails. Mm-hmm. I think that's an entirely different thing, right? So well, okay. to us, canned cocktails were this ability. Uh, is we have a very outdoorsy brand. And, and uh, I'm a very avid fly fish, and I'm, I fish as much as I possibly can. Okay. Uh, I am probably rare, although I have a lot of friends that do the same thing. But I'm probably rare in the fact that I will actually take a bottle of whiskey on a boat with me in a raft or a drift boat to go fly fishing. And I don't have a problem pouring a flask and enjoying a little whiskey as I fish. Um, having a canned cocktail and being outdoors and being able to reduce the waste and take it with you, uh, not having to carry a big old bottle in your boat is, uh, you know, the perfect thing for our brand. So it is, you know, the outside version of dry fly. Okay. Um, the RTD category, you know, ready to drink. I, I think that younger people seek that, uh, that, uh, ability to get something great that they just don't have to deal with. Right. Plain and simple. It's ready to go. And away we go. We took a very unique approach on those two. Like we have some of the lowest alcohol level products in the RTD category. And why did we do that? Because we think it's the responsible thing to do. I'd rather have people have a couple cans and they can just have one. And when we get into 12, 13, 14%, 12 ounce cans of alcohol, if you drink two of those cans, you just drank a bottle of wine. Right. So from a consumption level, it is precarious. And a lot of those cans will say, well, there's two portions in there. But in reality, we know that somebody's going to drink the whole can. What happens when you go to a lower alcohol level? You have to learn how to preserve your product. You got to take care of it. You have to be clean. You have to be sanitary. Part of the reason you use high alcohol, it kills everything. Okay. So it was a conscious decision to go the way we went. And, and uh, as a result of having lower alcohol levels, we can use real fruits and real juices and they all come through and they just taste better. Plain so and simple. Can you walk me through the process of a can Sure. For cocktail? the most part, I mean, we, we make, uh, we're just getting ready to do some whiskey products in the can, but right now it's uh, primarily vodka and gin that we're using as a base of those. So we ultimately make a base of product. Um, it will have water, fruit, juices, um, use sugar in, in some, sh- not sugar in others, just kind of depends upon the product. If it says it has huckleberries in it, it's got huckleberries. Damn well has huckleberries in okay. it. If it says it has grapefruit juice in it, we get that from grapefruits. If it says it has oranges, it has real orange juice in it. Okay. So, uh, what it says is what's in there. We ultimately blend that together, proof it down. There's, um, when you proof, uh, an item. So when you set the alcohol level, on an item that uh, is lower alcohol level, it's different instrumentation. So we had to buy a, <laughs> a, a machine to do that, which is $25,000, huh. but it allows that batching to be precise and correct. And um, then that goes into a, a tank and we carbonate it and at different levels. So we also make a Bloody Mary in here, which is carbonated with nitrogen instead of CO2 because nobody wants a fizzy Bloody Mary. <laughs> Um, and anyway, you learn those things as you go. And we learned that the, the first time we canned cans, we canned on a little machine that did two cans at a time. Now our machine does a hundred cans a minute. So it's an evolution and, and, uh, everything we've done at dry has been an evolution. Like we've started simply and worked our way into it. So where, where are the cans available? Are they, are they 42 states now? 42 states. Right. Um, just to put you on the spot, name one of the eight that it's not. Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. 
So <laughs> what, what happens ultimately, and this this same thing in bottle product, right? Uh, distribution outside of the Northwest where we have eyes, you know, and, and uh, closer contact. And maybe even down into California, we're fine. But as you start to get farther east, um, we have to use people to help us out. So typically, um, who our distributor is, is incredibly important. Okay. Um, we typically are going to put a broker in that marketplace so we have feet on the street to assist. Or in some cases, we've hired some individuals that may work a four or five state area, almost in a broker role, but they really work for us. Um, there are some states where you learn quickly that the cost of doing business exceeds what you could ever achieve okay. in any quick basis. I mean, the licensing fees or uh, or the the regulatory uh, situation is you know precarious for whatever reason. There are some states where you know it just it just doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, ultimately you just kind of look at it and go like, so do I think we'll ever be in all 50 States? Probably not as we're dry fly. If somebody uh, with some additional horsepower, whether that's in the distribution world or uh, somebody was to acquire us or do something that, that had 50 state distribution and could run that horse. Mm -hmm. That's probably how that'll happen. You know, so, be, being in the mid forties is pretty damn good for us. So are the cans, where if I were to go somewhere here in Spokane, mm -hmm. where would I find? They're in the grocery stores. In the grocery, yep. are they in the beer section? Uh, in some stores, right? So it is uh, Washington State. Right. Great, great example of our liquor control board is ultimately learning that this is a new category and we have to deal with it. So oh. when we started out, they were in the liquor section, right? And no one looks for a canned product in the liquor section, right? So there's been some uh, some loosening of kind of those. I think so now you may see some display outside, right outside the beer. You may see some stuff in the cooler. It all just depends on the okay. individual store and how the sets are done. And, and so approximately what's the, the, the alcohol in a can? Oh, they range from five to seven or 8%. Okay. I mean, so they're right there with like yeah, a, a cider or a, yeah, yeah. A, some craft That really beers. was the target. Okay. All right. Well, I, okay. Hard question for you. Oh, uh, there's no hard questions. What's your favorite dry fly product? Oh, wow. <laughs> I, okay that is a hard question it's like saying which one of your kids yeah, is your I, favorite I, I know um, on the bottle product side uh, I am most proud of, we, we make a whiskey from a grain called Triticale and we were what was that Triticale Triticale is an old uh, Scottish grain that is a hybrid of wheat and rye okay and uh, the reason we started working with that grain is that you cannot, for the most part, in the state of Washington, grow rye. It is a noxious weed in almost every county of the state because it is an anti-wheat crop. So uh, rye decimates wheat. And if oh. you talk to anyone who's worked on a wheat farm, even as a kid, usually your job as a kid is to go out in the field and pull up the rye that comes up, right? Because it's just you don't want it in your seed bin. Oh, yeah, you don't want it to perpetuate. So rye is a nasty word for wheat farmers. Uh, oh. So be, trying to stay in our single sourcing farm, again, that being our driving thing. And we were lucky enough to meet um, some folks out of Ridgeville, actually, in this um, spectrum grain development. And they were starting to grow triticale in the state of Washington. And it is not a grain that overwinters. It doesn't do what rye does at the end of the day. And so it um, was our ability to dabble in the world of rye without using rye. Oh. And so we worked with WSU, grew a, a number of grain varieties, um, narrowed it down to one particular seed and started making triticale whiskey. And uh, 
We were, I think, I know, we were the first distillery in the world to make 100% treated KD whiskey. We may still be, I don't know. Okay. And that's that's your, you're proud of that one? Yeah, that's something that we did from the ground up. Okay. I've never, okay. I had no idea about that rye was a... Uh, uh, See what you learn when you come to Dry Fly? Well, that's just that's uh, all I, these great things. I, 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 that's this, this whole episode is about me learning and admitting uh, I don't know very Listen, much. I, I learn every day. I'm no, 15 and I love years this. into this. This is uh, why I do this show is I get to no. I get to talk to interesting people. I, I learned a lot about uh, multi-million dollar construction projects, right? And that's something uh, that was outside my... It went, it went flawlessly, right? Nothing... Uh, no, never... And a, I did it in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So uh, all sorts of interesting issues Nothing there, could but, go wrong, but we'll, uh, we'll skip that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I will say that it it probably in hindsight, and I'm not all the way done yet. I'm I'm awfully close. But if I was to sit back and ponder it, uh, and, and I've been in this building for a year and change, so I've been here every day that this project has been going on. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I've learned a lot. I've uh, I've been incredibly fortunate to have a general contractor on site here who uh, grew up with my brother. So somebody that I known and I've come to know him very well in his company and we could talk about things and work through things and make decisions and go because there are a lot of those given the fact that you would say well we're going to do this kind of lighting and then the lighting company said well we can't get those lights for a year then you got to change your whole game so there are a lot of bobs and weaves that happen there right but I mean I learned a lot about that process and how to manage that and do it and survive I also did a lot of stuff in here I'll never do again. <laughs> never laying carpet again. I'm done with that. Okay. If I never have to paint a wall again, I'm okay with you're that. Okay. You're okay? You're, you're, you're <laughs> there's a number, the there's a number of like, things that I've got my uh, my life allotment has been allocated. So before I hit record, you were telling me you're born here. Yeah. Grew up here. Lived your life here. Made your business decision to be here. Yep. Why do you like Spokane? so much uh i'm a casual uh i like to think i'm a kind uh gentle uh, meaningful person and i think there's a lot of people like me here okay um i'm amazed that my friend group as i've developed over my life are people that are exactly like me i think that's rare to find uh people who have the same philosophy about life and business and other things. And, and uh, I, I cherish when I meet people like that. And I've met some wonderful people like that over the last few years Okay, that um, came from many different walks of life and many different business experience levels. But when you sit and talk to them, we all are the same kind of people. Um, I like that hometown farmy kind of thing about Spokane and, I like the fact we can talk to people and we can move around and we can uh, still be kind and gentle as we go through life. And, and I love the fact that Spokane, uh, when this community sets its mind to something, it gets done. And uh, we've been on the fortunate side of that. So Spokane, full yeah. of kind, kind people, hardworking people. You mentioned that. Yeah, just that great farm ethic of, uh, you know, hardworking, getting it done. And, and that there were, you know, I jokingly said before, I, there were a lot of things that I did in this bill I never do before. I, I don't know if I would give the experience up either. Like, sure. you know, I think that ethic of uh, work hard, uh, sweat equity is, you know, even 15 years into the equation still important. Okay. You also said something you called Spokane the 
What is the largest? <laughs> biggest farm town. Biggest farm town. Yeah. I, I, again, I think the, uh, the farmers that I know uh, that are family farmers from this area are some of the coolest people I've ever met. And, and I see that reflected all over Spokane. Okay. And I see that, um, again, when... Anyway, I think of when I think of farmers getting together and we see it happen every now and then where somebody has some kind of a problem and the community takes care of itself. Uh, Spokane does that uh, to a degree. There's some things that we could do better in that arena. Um, but when Spokane wants to get together to achieve something, they can do that. And I think that is, you know, at, at its root, probably a, an old time farm thing that's coming through. Okay. So when you're not, here at Dryfly, which you already just said you've been here every day for a year. <laughs> yeah. What do you what do you like to do for fun and excitement around here? Oh, I mean, I, again, I'm an I'm an avid fly fisherman, so if I can take some time to get out on the river, I'll do that. And that can be the Spokane River, which is 300 yards from here, or it could be, <laughs> you know, going somewhere more exotic. So I, I definitely try to take my time. I've been pretty poor about that. Where's your go to fly fishing spot in Washington? Well, I mean, I mean, I'll fish the Spokane. Okay. I mean, I think it is an underdeveloped and underappreciated fishery. Uh, it it takes some patience to get used to the Spokane, okay. and uh, and it takes some time, maybe some different methodology. But um, we're very fortunate; we have our own uh, species of red band trout in this river that are native to this waterway, which oh. is uh, super cool. So you can catch a fish here you can't catch anywhere else in the world. Oh, that's cool. Um, you know, that being said, driving an hour or two doesn't much get in my way. Either, so we're, what, what's an hour or two so from I'll, here? I'll go to um, Western Montana and the Clark Fork of the Bitterroot, or I can go into Idaho on okay. the St. Joe or the North Fork of the Coeur d'Alene. I typically am a moving water fisherman. Do you ever do the Yakima? Uh, I've done the Yakima a fair number of times over yeah. my lifetime, but I, I tend to I tend to go east instead of west now. Okay. All right. I mountain bike uh, and, and cycle, although this has been a horrible year for me. I usually do a, a 1,500 or 2,000 miles a year. Oh. Uh, and I restore antique cars. So, yeah, I've got plenty of hobbies. That's why I so should retire. So, antique cars. What do you, what do you, what was I, your latest I, I project? I do pre-1915 stuff. So, oh. a, a 1911 Ford that actually is not restored. I bought it. It has never been restored, which is part of the reason why I bought it. So, not related to. Early car guy. Not related to distilling at all. Why? I'm not a car guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a lot of things. Nine, why the cutoff at 1915? Uh, 1915 is a cutoff in, uh, in, the, in car collecting for, uh, they call that the brass era, the beginning era of antique cars. And there's a club, a club, the horses carriage club of America that is kind of pre 1916. So it, it really is sort of club driven to a certain okay. degree. Not that I don't like other cars beyond that category. I just really like the early stuff. All right. Put you on the spot. What's your daily driver? Well, I drive a GMC pickup truck just because I have to haul crap all the time. (laughs) Okay. What else about downtown Spokane? What's what? What should I go see? I've got a couple hours to kill, if you will. Yeah. It's a weekday. What's going on in downtown Spokane? I should check out. Well, unfortunately, it's Monday, so it's probably our our weakest day. Sure. Um, 
but what what has happened in Spokane, uh, like many other cities, is you know when the downtown core starts to get kind of a little unused, uh, if the city revitalizes correctly, then that creates a pathway for new younger businesses to come in and get started. So I think you'll see a, a bar and restaurant scene, although it's COVID kind of screwed up right now that is you know it's ready there's a there's been a ton of new restaurants that have opened in the last year god bless them in the middle of this, <laughs> this i have words i can use for it but i i'm sure yeah. they're not allowed I think, uh but <laughs> you know i'm glad that that um those guys and, and i listen i am the biggest fan that i hope they're able to make it through this because it's not easy right now right uh, trying to get that done um, Riverfront Park, which is the middle of our city, is you know Spokane's version of Central Park. That was our Expo '74 site. It is a beautiful place and um, just a, a showcase for our city and being able to be outside. And and I think if you're uh, you're wanting to come to Spokane and and uh, people who want to move here kind of learn from people who have been here that the reason you live here is that you can be outside four seasons and do four different sets of activities, right? So there is uh, within incredibly short walks, I, I can take you places in the city and you'll have no idea that we're that close to the city. Okay. Give me an example of one. Riverside State Park, which is um, one of our first, our primary state park here is downriver from us, literally uh, four miles downriver from us here uh, is a, there's 60,000 acres and it is a amazing place that again, the river flows through it. It's natural. Um, you'll see people on horseback, mountain bikes, uh, hiking, walking, uh, and it's in a gully and you'd never realize you are literally four miles from downtown. Wow. I don't think there's very many cities that can do that. No, not that I'm aware of. Are you, are you a fan of coffee? Uh, I have a coffee every day. So I don't know if that makes me a fan because yeah. I get the same coffee all the time. All right, so well, not a grand experimenter, but not a grand exper- <laughs> you're not a great, you, you experiment with distilling that with yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go to coffee spots in Spokane? Uh, like I said, I, I literally go to the same stand and I probably go to that same stand because of the girls who are there that I've gone to for the last four years. And it's just a thing. Right. So okay. it's like this habitual thing. It's more fun for me to say hi to them than anything else. Then so, get the coffee. Yeah. Okay. Not a great, again, not a great experimenter in that category. So what is your go-to coffee then? What, what do you get every day? Oh, I, I, I drink a non-fat, sugar-free ice mocha. Okay. During winter? Even during the winter. Even during the winter. Yeah, I wear right. shorts during the winter too. So I'm just kind of one of those weird you're, you're one of those, I, I have friends like that too. Yeah. That just shorts year round. Last question I'm going to ask you is in, you're in this new space. What's the next 12 to 24 months look like for you? Me personally or dry fly? You, well, you and dry fly. How's I'll answer that? dry fly first. Uh, you know, we have to uh, we have to get this facility functioning uh, at its highest potential, and and we are literally days away from that. So it's it's that's all finally coming together. Right. Um, you know, I, I can proudly say that it's paid for, done, lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, we don't owe anyone a hell of a lot of money, which that's is great. kind of a nice way to do it. That's awesome. My banker may argue with you on the owe them money part, but in the grand spectrum of things. 
uh, we did this efficiently and effectively. Okay. Uh, and part of that was we did it ourselves to a degree of that. So that sweat equity thing uh, definitely is a component in that. Um, what our primary objectives will be are, are kind of twofold. Uh, this increased canning capacity will allow us to ultimately meet the market demand because we haven't come close yet. Really? Uh, we've, we've been allocating, uh, we run out of product all the time. And that's a wonderful problem to have. Yeah. Um, so we'll come closer to meeting that. Uh, do I think we'll really catch up? No. Okay. I mean, I think what will happen is the demand, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, we will begin to barrel more whiskey, right? So that is one thing. Our, our fermenter now, our fermenters in our old facility, a fermenter would make 1.25 barrels of whiskey. These fermenters make 12 barrels of whiskey at a shot. So our ability to lay down whiskey at a much higher rate uh, is finally with us. So we'll do that. That's a good thing for us to do for our future. It's like a gigantic savings account. Right, is, right. Uh, how yeah. I philosophically think about it. Okay. Uh, and then just, it will be getting more people in this building to experience. This is a very unique place and we built it very uh, transparent that uh, if you sit in the facility, you can see exactly what's happening out there. So our ability to kind of share the distilling experience with people is, um, this is at probably the highest level you can get anywhere that I've ever been. Uh, and we kind of immersed everything inside of that. Um, I think we uh, will... Uh, be proud to share that process and what we're doing and, and how we're doing it um, with people so that they can understand. And I, I think we have, uh, and people know that when dry fly says it, there's a damn good chance. It's exactly right. That's what we do. Okay. Uh, and that now they'll be able to see it. It'll be right in front of them. Well, this is a really cool space. Thanks. And thanks yeah, for making this been, happen. It's been fun to build and it's been fun to have visions about, what this would all look like and how it would all be. And, and, uh, uh, I can say that, you know, in, in the high 90 percentile, it kind of turned out exactly like I thought it would. All right. My, my, my safety valve question is what didn't I ask you that I should have? Well, I think we hit on, you know, our core values. We, we talk about, you know, patience and persistence and perfection. And those are things we strive for. You can never be perfect, but you got to point that way. Um, the patience thing that defines the world of whiskey, um, you know, do things that, you know, uh, you may never see, uh, I may never see or, or sure. um, that's okay. Um, you know, and, and I always be persistent about everything we do. We try to treat our people correctly and, and, uh, how many people are working here now? You know, we're up to 32. Wow. Yeah. How's that feel? That's frightening. <laughs> you know, when we started with two and now we're at 32, uh, having a group of people uh, is exciting. The, the thing that I have to work very hard on, and this is just my ethos is, you know, I, I have to know people. I, I still have to take time to sit down and talk to everybody and try to get to know them and who they are. And that allows me to figure out uh, to a certain degree, because I've done that with the majority of our staff, whether or not I think they're going to fit and it's going to work and, uh -huh. and things like that. You know, I think we've learned um, some really good lessons. We don't need to hire talent here. We just need to hire great people and teach anybody anything, mm -hmm. especially in this scenario and especially here because everything is new. So although 
you know, Patrick, who is where's our employee number one is still here. He runs a production thing. Uh, producing like we produce now is not like we used to produce before. Right. <laughs> this is a much more efficient, uh, simpler. We've taken some of the romance out of turning knobs and running the still. We've made it so you push a button on a computer, which sounds bad, but trust me, it's not. It's a good thing. Um, but it, it's evolution. So, uh, you know, watching our, even our core group of people evolve is pretty dang fun. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. Thank you. You got it. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.